If you're hearing this, you have successfully located the very first episode of the Sound Africa podcast. I am Rose Tiani Peter, and I'm talking to you from South Africa. In this episode, we give you two stories under one theme, Africa in space. Both are produced by Rasmus Beats. For this episode, he visited a small town in the Northern Cape of South Africa where nothing much happens. That is, if you exclude the biggest science project in the world. But first, we start in a completely different time and space. The early 1960s in soon-to-be independent Zambia. Here, a local grade school teacher took on both the Soviet Union and the US led by President John F. Kennedy. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best. While President Kennedy grabbed the Americans by their hearts with a passionate speech in Houston, Texas on September 12, 1962, another man had even bigger dreams more than 14,000 kilometers away in what today is called Zambia. The man was called Edward Nkoloso, and two years earlier, he had founded the Zambian National Academy of Science, Space Research and Philosophy. I'm the Director General of Science, Space Research and Philosophy. His ambition was clear. Zambia should not only participate in the space race, but win it in front of the Cold War superpowers, the Soviet Union and the United States of America. The first man on the moon was not going to be an astronaut or a cosmonaut or even a man. Nicoloso was training a young woman named Mata Mwamba to become an astronaut. She was going to be the first human on the moon. America, do you ever think this world is yours? Nicoloso was one of the men that pretty much personifies a time and a place in history. He was a great school teacher and part of the first generation of well-educated Africans under colonial rule. As a soldier, he fought for the British during World War II. The people of Africa are doing excellent work to help the Allied cause. Such regiments as the King's African Rifles and the Royal West African Frontier Force are known the world over. It is no secret that the British was on the winning team during the war, but the African soldiers returning to their home countries from battlefields all over the world did not only bring back souvenirs. Often they also brought back a new national consciousness and a burning question to the colonial power Great Britain. We risked our lives in the fight for freedom, but why is it then that we don't get a share? The veterans often played a central role in liberation movements and the demands for independence all over the continent. And Edward Nokoloso was part of the struggle for independence in Zambia. And because of his role as an activist, he spent several years in jail. But in the early 60s, he was out again, working hard at his space program. He wanted to launch his first rocket at the Zambian Independence Day in October 1964. But that never happened, because the new leadership of Zambia under Kenneth Kaunda was not interested in a more or less official rocket launch during the celebrations. A fact Nkoloso did not like, one could read in the American Time magazine on October 30th, 1964. 
only one noted Zambian failed to share in all the harmony, Time magazine reported. He is Edward Mukuka Nkoloso, a grade school science teacher and the director of Zambia's National Academy of Science, Space Research and Philosophy, who claimed the goings-on interfered with the space program to beat the US and the Soviet Union to the moon. A couple of weeks later, Nkoloso is visited by the British TV station ITV in his headquarters outside of Lusaka. Mr. Enclosa, is this the site for your rocket launching program? And could you tell me where your rocket is? Yes, this is the rocket launching site, and my rocket is just here. And what is the On the grainy black and white footage, you can see the astronauts training. For example, by rolling down a hill in an empty barrel. And the British reporter was not impressed. We have a youthful group of budding astronauts playing at entering Zambia for the world space race. However, to most Zambians, these people are just a bunch of crackpots. And from what I have seen today, I am inclined to agree. The footage showing Nkoloso with a cape and a steel helmet next to his astronauts rolling down a hill in a barrel has later given him a reputation of somewhat of a crackpot, as the British journalist called him. But Nkoloso claimed that the only thing preventing him from reaching the moon was seven million pounds sterling. He applied UNESCO for the money, but never received any. And July 20th, 1969, the race for the moon was over. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Nkoloso's space program ran out of money. The space girl, Matamwamba, fell pregnant and went back to a village. And finally, Nkoloso gave up and secured a government job. The dream of Zambia as a space nation was over. But was Edward Nkoloso really the crackpot he was made out to be? The Nairobi-based filmmaker Kepinda Limba isn't so sure. You're always asking yourself, did he really... You know, did he really have something or was he just one of those those crazy guys? Lemba has made a documentary called Mukuka and Coloso, the Afronaut for Chinese CCTV. And during his research, strange details started surfacing. I, I went back to Zambia and I met um, a very senior army officer. And when I had mentioned his name, he says, oh, that guy. Yeah, he, he, he says, yeah, we made a trip with him to, to NASA, you know, during the 60s. So I said, what? We might never know if Nkoloso actually had a viable plan, but lately his dream has taken on a life of its own. Aside from Lemba's documentary, a young Ghanaian has made a film about him. He's inspired a photo exhibition in Spain, and today his story inspires young Zambians to dream bigger. Here from Lemba's film. The people that were taking that video didn't take him seriously, but they documented that yeah. and now we can see that someone in the past thought that way and took it yeah. upon themselves to do it, even though he didn't get any help from the government or anyone. He yeah. took it upon himself and the people he was working with and he had a dream and that's enough, I think, just having that dream. And maybe that's Nokoloso and the astronauts' true heritage. To dare dreaming as far as the moon, even if it seems a long way from Lusaka. America, do you ever think this world is yours? You can find Kabinda Lemba's documentary, The Afronaut, on YouTube. Do you ever think this world is yours? Next up is the second part of the Africa in Space episode. 
For this story, we go to the small town of Carnarvon in the northern Cape province of South Africa. It's dusty here and home to farmers and sheep, but nearby, they're building something exciting, a giant radio telescope called the Square Kilometer Array. And according to the director of the project, Dr. Bernie Fanaroff, it's going to be pretty big. It's the biggest science project in the world at the moment. It'll be by far the biggest telescope ever built. And it will do what we call transformational science. In other words, it'll make discoveries that transform the way we understand the universe and physics. Uh, and it will, we hope, generate Nobel Prizes. What we particularly like to see is African scientists winning Nobel Prizes using a telescope in Africa. Right, we have arrived to Canafon, a church from 1874. There's a bowling club here. Oh wow, it's a very decorated house. Here we go, Voortrekker campsite. Okay. All right, let's. Oh wow, that's a huge dog. <laughs> Waiting to greet us. Yep. Okay. Hello, hello. Just a big, big guy, that one, eh? Yes. How are you doing? Hello. Fine, you too. Rasmus. You too. We're doing a, and some little bit of radio. Um, uh, we want to talk about this new space telescope that they are uh, building. Oh, okay, SKA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. There was a guy coming from, I think it was from Joburg, yeah. um, he was camping here and he said to me, what are you people doing in this place? You know what? Um, I'm staying here for quite a long time, so firstly, it's safe. I said to him in Joburg, can you just leave everything and walk down to the shop? He says to me, no, can't. Said to me, okay, the other thing I want to ask you, we've got almost nothing, but when last did you see a star above your head? I'm Bernie Fanroff, I'm the director of this SKA South Africa project. Uh, I'm a South African. I have a PhD in radio astronomy. I've done many different things. I studied radio astronomy, then I worked as a trade union organizer for 17 years. Then I was in government for six years. And then I was in business and eventually I came around back to astronomy. In the 1990s, uh, astronomers started asking, what is the next big thing we should build in radio astronomy? Radio astronomy is a study of radio signals from the universe which tells you about different phenomena to those that you see with an optical telescope. So they started working on the concept of what they called a square kilometer array. In other words, an array of small uh, telescope dishes 
which when added together would be the equivalent of one square kilometer of collecting area. From 2003, uh, an international committee asked for expressions of interest from various countries to host the telescope. Five countries made offers. We were one of them. And in 2012, a final decision was made. The SK International Board decided to build part of the telescope in Africa and part in Western Australia. So we will be building what is called the dish array. In other words, it will be about two and a half thousand uh, satellite communication dishes. In the central part of the telescope, which is near to a small town called Carnarvon in the Northern Cape province, you'll have about a thousand dishes and that means the whole landscape will be covered in these dishes. So if you can imagine uh, four-story buildings, about a thousand of them spread over about 150 kilometers, and then the rest of the dishes will be spread along spiral arms. And some will be built in Namibia, some in Botswana, Mozambique, the islands of Mauritius and Madagascar, Kenya, Ghana, Zambia. So those will all have probably about 50 to 100 dishes each. And they'll all be connected. And then in Western Australia, there will be what's called a low frequency array which is not dishes, they're like metal Christmas trees, and there'll be about a million of them in Western Australia. And the museum here says it's open Monday to Friday, eight to one, but it's not really open all the time. Huh? No, it's not really open. <laughs> but uh, people that want to come in, they just come to us. We open up for them. Is it an old church building, this it one? It was an old church building. All right. Shall I just step in? Step inside. Thank you. Here is the old good generals. And uh, yeah, some of the commander at that stage. Stuff like that. The poor generals? Yes. From, from the Boer War? Yeah. Wow, this is a very, it's like, well, I guess it's an old big church room. And then by the one end, we have like old horse carriages. And otherwise, it's a lot of different things from the past of Carnarvon, I guess. Yeah. Um, um, okay, there's a little laptop line <laughs> from 1995. It says it has a hard drive of 20 megabytes. Yeah. Quite the big one. <laughs> the square kilometer array will be so big that it will generate more data than anything else in the world. In fact, the, the amount of data created by the square kilometer array will be more than all the data in the entire World Wide Web. An optical telescope picks up light from stars and galaxies and clouds of gas, and it concentrates that light through a mirror, it focuses it, and then through a detector like the one in your cell phone, it makes a picture or a spectrum. Radio astronomy is a little bit different uh, in the way we make the pictures, but ultimately that's what you're doing. So you collect radio waves from the universe, 
you focus them using a big mirror like a satellite dish and that goes into a radio receiver and then we turn that into numbers immediately and if you combine the output from a lot of dishes all looking at the same galaxy or cloud of gas or whatever you can make a picture of that and the bigger the dishes are or the more dishes there are the more photons you can collect so that you can see very faint objects but you can also combine dishes which are even on different continents and the further apart they are the finer the detail you can see so it's almost like a zoom lens you can zoom in by having dishes on different continents all working together now we will work with dishes on different continents but the square kilometer array will mainly be built in africa and spread over more than 3,000 kilometers. So you'll have these two and a half thousand dishes spread over 3,000 kilometers, all connected by optical fiber. They all look at the same object at the same time. And the numbers that are generated from the radio receivers are all fed to a computer, which will be on our site in the Karoo. And that will be used to generate pictures of what you're looking at, or spectra, or timing for instance to find pulsars which are the rotating neutron stars that give a blip every time they rotate past us so all of those things will be produced by our computer and then sent to cape town where they'll be uh, further cleaned up with computers and then we'll send them out to the international astronomy community around the world hello hello sorry for disturbing my name is rasmus Matheson, Mrs. Matheson. Okay. My name is Stella. Is this a new coffee shop? It's a new coffee shop, yeah. Ah, I see. Are you uh, new in business or new in new town? New in business and new in town. Where are you from? I'm originally from Cape Town. You are? Mm -hmm. My husband is uh, the seas was born here. Yeah, I see. So he was working in Cape Town for all the years and after retirement he decided to come back home. And you? How did you feel about that? <laughs> I'm here. So <laughs> it was difficult to adjust, especially the shops. There's no shops, there's no places to go, nothing like that. You just had to adjust. Why did you decide to open a coffee shop? Uh, to keep busy, because I'm just sitting at home. To keep busy, and I love cooking. Is that That's so? my passion. Mm. So when you think about Carnarvon, like you've been coming here for many years, I presume. Have you seen it, uh, it changing? Not really. Not really. Ever since I've been here, nothing changed. Mm. So the, you know that they're building that big space telescope nearby here. Does that mean anything for the town? I hope so. I hope that the town is going to benefit from it. I've read up on it and, and talked to some of the people there, so I know a little bit about what they're doing. Um, have, do you know anything about that? Uh, just what I heard and what I've seen on TV mm. Mm, the last time. Yeah. Mm. They're saying that those telescopes, when they're done, when they're finished totally, they can see as far away as to the beginning of the universe. <laughs> What you're looking at is 
really at the edge of the universe. So the square kilometre ray is intended to look so far out in the universe that you're looking right back to a time very close to the beginning of the universe. So you want to get radio waves which have been travelling across the universe for almost the entire 14,000 million years of its history. And that's why you push the technology because you want to be able to see things which are very faint, very far away. So you would be looking back about 13,000 million years. Uh, and when I say a three-dimensional map of the universe, I mean that you're mapping it in direction, but also in time, because distance and time in this case are pretty much the same. The further away you look, the further back you're looking in time, because the radio waves take that time to travel to you. So you're looking back about 13,000 million years, long way, if you bear in mind that the Earth is only about 4,000 million years old. Hey, hello. Can I ask you a question? Yes. What's your name? Shade. S-A-D-E. Oh, like uh, there's a famous singer named that, eh? Yes, sir. Are you named after her? Yes, sir. I see. <laughs> what are you uh, What are you doing here? I'm currently visiting my grandmother. Where do you live? In the Bald. Still in town? Yes. Ah. How old are you? I'm 21. 21, eh? Okay. Well, what is it like living here when you're 21 years old? It's awesome because there's a lot of things I have to do. Okay, well, so what things do you like to do then? Like on weekends or through the week? On Saturdays? On Saturdays. Maybe me and my friends will go to Kuaha, which is a local actually club for teenagers, where you pay seven rand to go in, or we will sit at home and just chill, watch TV. So have you thought about what you're going to do like uh, with the, the next coming years? Yes, um, I would like to further my course in assistant chef, which, which I was busy with before I came here. Assistant what? Chef. You want to be a chef? <laughs> yes, sir. Huh? What kind of food would you want to make? I don't know, maybe cakes, because I like sweet things though. Mm, and would you then make a shop here in Carnarvon? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I wouldn't. Why? Because it's too small and I wouldn't make a lot of money. Where would you go then? I would stay in Cape Town. In yeah. Cape Town? Yes. That's, that's, that's my hometown actually. I was born there. Do you prefer Carnarvon to Cape Town for a living? I would prefer Carnarvon actually. Have you heard about this big um, space telescope they're building out here? SKA telescope? Yes, I have. What, what do you think about that? I think it's awesome though because she's my niece and on primary school she was actually part of the SKA. Okay, okay. And, um, and, you li and so do you know what they're doing? Not actually, though, no. no. Ah. One of the most interesting things about big new telescopes is that they generally become famous for finding things that nobody expected. So although you have to produce what is called a science case to persuade governments to invest in a very big science instrument like the Square Kilometre Array, some of the science will come from that, but some of it will be what we call serendipitous discoveries 
things that nobody would have predicted or had known were there. But the science case for the Square Kilometre Array includes a whole range of very exciting things. So we want to understand, as I said earlier, how did the first stars form in the universe? When did they form? How did the first black holes form? How did the universe heat up again? It was very hot when the Big Bang took place. Then its expansion cooled it down and became cold and dark. Then when the first stars and galaxies formed, it heated up again. We want to understand that. Then we want to understand how galaxies grow and how clusters of galaxies grow. Why do we have different kinds of galaxies, spiral galaxies and elliptical galaxies? Why have galaxies changed over the lifetime of the universe and how have they changed? We want to investigate um, what's called the cradle of life. So to be able to look at what are called pr protoplanetary disks out of which planets form. We want to look for organic molecules in space. We know there are organic molecules. We'd like to find, for instance, amino acids, which are the basic building blocks of proteins and of life. So they have these big satellite dishes and then they are looking up into space and they're looking for the beginning of time and the universes, so where everything started. Oh, that's awesome. It sounds like a, it sounds like, um, a comedy I always watch on three. Um, what's a comedy's name again? I can't get to it, but it sounds like that comedy I always watch. The Big Bang Theory. <laughs> yes, it sounds like that comedy. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. What do you think is there at the beginning of time and the beginning of the universe? I think it's empty. I think there's nothing except stars, maybe, or, or different creatures than us. I think, I don't know. Like um, aliens? Yes, <laughs> like aliens. <laughs> All right. They're looking for aliens too, I've heard. Really? Do aliens actually exist? I don't know. Okay. What do you think? <laughs> no. No? No. <laughs> No, I don't think so. But I guess uh, people in Kanawan will be the first to know if aliens exist because they will find out out there. Maybe they'll land here in Kanawan. And then everyone will leave Kanawan if the aliens actually come. You think? Oh, no, I don't think. <laughs> so when you say uh, organic molecules and, and uh, for instance, you know, the basic uh, building blocks of life. Like, that's what I would write in a headline. As a journalist, I would say you're looking for life in space, alien life, right? Well, that's one of the things. It's not the only thing. Of course, there will be some work done on SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, because the SK will be so powerful. It will be able to see further into the universe than current telescopes. So, for instance, uh, with current telescopes being used for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, you'd have to have someone sitting on a planet not too far away beaming a signal towards the Earth. But the SKA will be so powerful that you won't need that signal to be beamed at you. You'll be able to see, for instance, airport radars or TV stations uh, around the planet quite a long way away from us. So you've got a better chance of finding life. So basically in that case, you could say that we can maybe see other beings out there even though they are not looking for us? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, communicating with them on the other hand would be difficult because 
remember that the further away a planet is, the longer the radio waves take to get to us. So if you're looking at a planet 50 light years away, it means what you saw actually left that planet 50 years ago. And if you send a signal back to it, it'll only get there in 50 years' time. So it'd be 100 years between communications. My name is Ilta. I'm originally from Carnarvon. My first thought about it was uh, when I learned to know it from the television that something like the SKA is about to happen. And then it was South Africa, it was the Northern Cape Canavan, was the place they decided to do the SKA. And then I was really at that time slumbering, but uh, from day to day as the things I see happening and I know what can come out of it, I'm really getting excited. Does it make you uh, feel proud that this is uh, happening here? <laughs> I'm very proud, I'm very proud, really, really. And, and yes, I'm very proud that it is here because this is an opportunity for Carnarvon, you see, for development, you see. Not uh, the things only of the town, buildings and so, but for the, for the life of people, you see. Some of our matriculants, some of them, they was long time out of job, you see, and then they get this job, you see, and uh, it helped them, you see, and you can, you can see that what uh, their life is becoming now, you see, to can build their lives and build it positive. And you think that uh, the SKA will bring opportunity to Canavaran, uh, like the people growing up now as well, like, like yeah. the youngsters here? Yeah, a very great opportunity is just that we have to take it from here and go forward with it so that they can, from that age, they can see what is happening and they must feel it, you see. So as they grow up, they, they love it, you see, mm. yeah. So what they're doing there is like looking into space and everything. Do you ever think about space? <laughs> yes, yes, of course. Sometimes I think about the universe, you see, but I cannot uh, tell you that it is the universe which I saw, you see, but it was just my imagination, you see. What do, you, what do you think the, that they will find when they start looking closely? I don't know what to expect. <laughs> I don't know what to expect. But I know it is, it is huge. It's, it's, I don't know whether I can call it massive. It makes us uh, think back, you see, about where we are coming from, where we are going, what is our purpose, what we are to do. It will also make us... Uh, go forward in our sciences and the uh, business in that category. Mm. So you think that something like that will make us understand what we're supposed to do as humans also? Not completely, not completely, because it is only God who uh, guides us every day. And But as in this uh, physical universe, we can learn to know things. Yeah. We can learn to know things. around you. A lot of them has these quite characteristic plateaus on top. 
the road here is empty. It's so long, the road that you sort of get into the monotony of travel. The landscape is so big and uh, the distances are so vast that it seems like even though you're going 120 kilometers per hour, it seems like you're going in slow motion. If you don't look directly at the road, but rather into the distance, it seems like you can almost see the curve of the planet in the distance. Kind of like if you actually would be on a boat looking across the sea. The road here is so long and lonesome that if science saying, if you're tired, stop and rest, which I guess is good advice, finally into the big highway right out here next to where we are right now um, on sort of the suburbs of Cape Town and if you continue out the into you go through the Cape Flats where you'll find townships and informal settlements and people living in dire uh, conditions you'd get a lot of houses for just the initial cost of 650 million uh, euros um, how do you think of of that the amount of money that 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 you are part of spending here in comparison to what where else they would do good well first of all the 650 million euros isn't available for housing it comes from what are currently 10 member states that are contributing that money if you ask them to send it to us to build houses on the cape flats they'd probably say no a lot of that money, however, will be spent in South Africa, so it does create jobs and it does create uh, income. But there's another question, which is, how does one see the future of Africa? Everybody, like Barack Obama yesterday, speaking about Africa as the great economic growth story. In order to achieve that economic growth, you need to do certain things. You need to have skills. You need to build up technology. You need to build infrastructure. So yes, we could spend money only on housing and food security and water security, and those are great needs, and we are spending money on those things. But we don't accept a model where Africa will remain in colonial state forever, and all the clever stuff will be done in Europe or America, all the technology, all the economic development takes place there. We're only good enough to do you know, a little bit of house building, a little bit of farming. That's not true. Africa will be wealthy in the future by developing its skills, its technology capability, for instance, in big data. There's no reason why South Africa can't become a leading uh, uh, power in big data. We have very bright young people. We have very good universities. There's no particular backlog. Nobody's further ahead than we are so we can participate in the global economy. So we don't accept this colonial image that, you know, we're on the edge of Africa, we must just be satisfied with doing little things and all the clever big things are done in the Northern Hemisphere. That keeps us just, you know, on the edge of the global economy and it keeps us poor forever. We've taken a little stop just outside of the radio silence area where they are building the 
enormous square kilometer array, SKA radio telescope. In the distance I can see a few of the large, large dishes. These big white dishes. I feel like I'm standing in a Karoo postcard. There's uh, one of the very iconic classical windmills here that drives a water pump which pumps water into a dam. I guess a huge technological leap at its time. And here now, many years later, the windmill is still going, water is still pumping, and the sheep are still running around among the little sharp bushes, seemingly happy. All these dry regions here once belonged to the sand people exclusively. Sand people, I call them in lack of a better or more precise word. There is no doubt that the people who lived here in northern South Africa, Namibia, Botswana and other regions in southern Africa, there is no doubt that they were the first here. As uh, they have a particular genetic makeup that suggests that they are among some of the very, very few so-called ancestral population clusters from where all humankind descends. Since they were uh, walking the desert here alone, the night sky hasn't changed very much. But human life really, really has. Now looking at these first few giant dishes that'll make up the SKA radio telescope in the distance here, it somehow seems like even more appropriate location for a scientific project that will transform the way we understand the universe, the beginning of life and the beginning of time. All right, Dane, I think I've, uh, I've said everything I could. I got a little bit um, abstract in the end, so I think maybe we should just get going. Okay. You have a spare tire, right? And that concludes the first episode of the Sound Africa podcast. Today's episode was produced and edited by Rasmus Beats with the help from Dane Dodds and Micah Reddy. My name is Rose Tuyeni Peter. Before you go, I have two things to say. Firstly, if you are in Africa and have a story to tell, please get in touch through our website, soundafrica.org. This is an open invitation and you can become part of the team, so don't hesitate to pitch ideas or give us tips for interesting stories. And secondly, sharing is caring. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us. You can also help us tremendously by going to iTunes and giving us a review. We are also on Facebook, SoundCloud and Twitter. Find out more, subscribe and get in touch on soundafrica.org.